This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 20th of November 2015, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its second annual conference entitled Protection Elsewhere But Where? National, Regional and Global Perspectives on Refugee Law. The keynote address was given by Ms Erica Feller. From 2005 to April 2013, Ms Feller held the post of Assistant High Commissioner for Protection at the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. This was the culmination of a 26-year-long career with UNHCR and had been preceded by 14 years' service as an Australian diplomat in Canberra and overseas. For UNHCR, Ms Feller served both in Geneva and in the field, notably as the High Commissioner's representative for Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei. She was the initiator and manager of the 2001-2002 to Global Consultations on International Protection, which generated the Agenda for Protection, the internationally endorsed Global Roadmap on Protection Policy for Refugees. She is broadly respected as a refugee law advocate who has been published widely. On her return to Australia in 2013, she was made a Fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. In July 2014, she took up an appointment as Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. She recently received the University of Melbourne 2015 Arts Alumni Award for Leadership. She holds a Bachelor of Arts with Honours in Psychology and a Bachelor of Laws with Honours from the University of Melbourne. So, where to begin with an examination of the question? I think context is very important and Jane has given us, I think, a very good overview of some of the context which I will come back to in, in my following comments. I think it's dangerous to disregard context, as is unfortunately quite often the case in this country. Context has to include Europe, because we see Europe playing across our screens on a daily basis. But it also has to include developments globally and in the Asia-Pacific region. The situation in Europe is dire, but it should not be allowed to eclipse other problems which are and, and to deflect consideration from these other problems, which are issues still of very serious concern, including those that we see in the Andaman Sea and the Bay of Bengal. So just very briefly to revert to the global situation, as Jane said, there are some 60 million persons in displacement situations at the moment. More than one-third are refugees and asylum seekers and two-thirds internally displaced, with in addition some 10 million stateless people who may be refugees but not necessarily. Of the some 17 million refugees, over 85% live in developing countries, which mostly suffer human rights and governance issues of their own. Just to take one example, this is the, stricken, the conflict-stricken Yemen. It has an internal displacement population of 2.3 million, but it's also currently host to 264,000 refugees from different countries, but notably Somalia. Less than one in 40 refugee situations are resolved within three years. Many continue for decades and become seriously protracted 
just as donor funds progressively dry up. So that leaves millions of people in substandard conditions with no foreseeable future prospects. There are well, I won't go into the details in the Middle East because Jane also went through them, uh, but particularly Jordan, it's worth noting that some 84% of people live outside a refugee camp in spite of the preconceptions that we're led to believe that most are being decently treated and decently looked after inside camps. What has been witnessed Increasingly over recent times is that coping strategies have become particularly dire, many children dropping out of school to work or to beg on the streets, and women turning to sex to survive. The story is repeated in comparable ways in many displacement situations, yet facilitated solutions are not on the horizon for many. Local integration is only exceptionally offered and resettlement to third countries is a possibility for no more than 1% of the global refugee population. One result of all of this is that from the very humble beginning, beginnings mentioned earlier of UNHCR as a small, essentially non-operational advocacy agency with limited staff and a budget of only a few million, UNHCR today is one of the major shelter and assistance agencies, as well as protection agencies in the United Nations system. It has some 10,000 staff now, and it has a budget pushing upwards of $7 billion. That is huge uh, for the budget it used to have only a few years ago. Flight has to be understood as people taking control of their own futures in the face of grave, grave danger, or otherwise the impossibility of staying where they are. Not all people who are fleeing are refugees. Many, many leave for reasons linked to desperation, but not to persecution or to dire security, physical security risks. Distinctions between refugees and migrants are blurring, contributing in many countries to asylum being in very negative territory. Generosity when it comes to refugees has had to contend over the years with global economic crises, unavailability of jobs, terrorism and transnational crime on the rise, a heightened sense of insecurity on the part of civil society in many countries, and the accompanying rise of populist politics. And then there is the reality of unbalanced burden and responsibility sharing. Receiving states not easily, many receiving states receiving much more of the burden and the responsibility than others. This is distorted push and pull factors and it's starting to create a civil society backlash in many countries and to close doors. And I want to return to that because I think it's an important theme for the subsequent discussions at this conference. The prognosis on the horizon for future mass movements is not so good. Conflict, which is the chief displacement driver at the moment, looks to be a constant. The last five years alone have witnessed some 15 new or reoccurring conflicts. There is a high probability that patterns of displacement will be increasingly impacted by environmental factors such as population growth, declining resources, inequality of access to them, ecological damage and climate change. 
Many refugees come from or find themselves in countries not only falling into the highest risk category for civil conflict, but also ranked amongst the world's poorest nations, where endemic and cyclical ethnic and civil strife is acting in concert with factors like low cropland, limited availability of fresh water, etc. Just to take one small country that one used to hear a bit about and has sort of fallen out of the news recently, Niger. Niger registered over the last number of months a record high of 54,000 refugees arriving in November alone from Mali, Niger. The peace accord signed between the government and the rebels in June 2015 has done little to stem this outflow and it's taken a lot of the world and a lot of the agencies, including UNHCR, by surprise. Those fleeing are reportedly leaving because of a combination, and here I'm quoting um, from a report on this, a combination of lawlessness, extortion, food, food shortages, intertribal rivalry, fighting between herders and farmers, all exacerbated by a power vacuum in the absence of a strong government and a military presence in the East. So in other words, a multiplicity of causes is continuing to drive an exodus of people. Now, moving from the global to the more regional Europe. Recently, of course, not a day has passed when there hasn't been a despairing article about migrant flows and refugee flows into Western Europe. Images of UK-bound Afghans, Syrians, or Eritreans around the port of Calais. Bulgaria and Hungary building walls against an ever-record-breaking flow of people hoping to transit to Germany or Austria. Greece in deep trouble as it tries to cope not only with a debt crisis, but a people crisis, with some six to 9,000 persons a day arriving on its outlying islands. The European Union Justice and Home Affairs Ministers disagreeing on just about everything, from how the Dublin Agreement should work through to intake quotas, and of course we see the floating dead, with around 700,000 having crossed into Europe via the Mediterranean routes so far this year, and over 3,400 having lost their lives in the process. The photograph of the lifeless body of a three-year-old washed up on the shores of a Turkish beach in September has become the leitmotiv of this humanitarian emergency, arousing a storm of global protest and concern. The composition of those arriving at Europe's borders has been very mixed. Clearly, a very high percentage of them is Syrians, both those who have come directly from Syria but also a growing number leaving from first asylum countries like Turkey, Lebanon, or Jordan. There is a significant increase in returns to Syria from where there is onward travel to Turkey and beyond. Now, one could ask the question, does this make a difference? Sometimes it does. Coming directly from life-threatening situations is one of the stipulations in the 1951 Refugee Convention for unauthorized entry not to attract a penalty. But coming directly is at best an ambiguous concept. It's not confined to those who are leaving their own countries. 
and indeed life is hardly tolerable and indeed can constitute a very serious risk for Syrians in neighboring asylum countries, especially if you're a woman alone or an unaccompanied child. Sea arrivals to, to Europe have included over 10,000 unaccompanied children in the course of this outflow. There is a misconception, as I said earlier, that the majority of, of refugees in neighboring countries, or countries neighboring Syria, are tolerably looked after in camps. This is false. Some 70% throughout the entire region, not just Jordan, but throughout the region, are actually living very desperate lives outside any organized camp environment. Yet together with those coming from refugee-producing countries like Syria or Iraq, Eritrea or Afghanistan, there are also many others. There are Kosovars, Albanians, Serbians, Macedonians in growing numbers, Nigerians as well. The forces fueling this flight are all are various and strong. They include insecurity and desperation, which is driving an increasing number of refugees and migrants to leave. But there's also the drawcard of quality services, education and work possibilities in Europe, and this is strong, as is the push factor, which Jane mentioned earlier, of decreasing levels of humanitarian assistance in first asylum countries. Opportunity is enticing others to join the mass flows. Lucrative earning possibilities are opening up ever more avenues for people smuggling to exploit. It is also for some becoming cheaper the being smuggled as increased supply is starting to meet growing demand. Social media is facilitating travel, even while misinformation is compounding the situation, leading to false hopes. So this is clearly, I think, a migrant and refugee mix. And that's an important factor when one is talking about protection, protection for whom, where. If there is a positive thing coming out of this crisis, it is a positive avalanche of ideas about how better to respond. Advice is streaming into European countries from many sources. Some ideas being acted on or canvassed, which should be considered by countries also outside Europe at this point, involve, and here I'm, I have a, a non-exhaustive list. Some of the ideas include enforceable national intake quotas based on GDP, number of asylum seekers, or unemployment levels. And the ideas include joint reception and processing arrangements, joint arrangements, including specialized centers for those coming from countries deemed safe. Differentiated stay arrangements pegged to the likely duration of protection needs and legal migration pathways. These are all ideas now which are coming to gain some credibility uh, as part of this response to this new mass outflow. They're not necessarily new, these ideas, most of them anyway. What will be new, if it happens, is how they are pieced together and then acted upon in a coherent and coordinated manner to determine who, how, and where to protect.
what is yet to emerge, in my view at least, is the leadership necessary to build this coordination effectively and beyond Europe. I stress beyond Europe because this is very much a global crisis. It is not the responsibility of only one or even several regions, and that must include, of course, the regions neighbouring the uh, producing countries, it is not the responsibility of these regions alone to bear. It is a global responsibility and has to be addressed globally. Still on regional issues, Asia-Pacific. Mixed movements are as prevalent in the Asia-Pacific region as anywhere else. This region includes major refugee-producing countries like Myanmar, Sri Lanka, Afghanistan, and depending on how wide you define it, North Korea, for example. It's also a region experiencing multi-layered migratory movements driven or drawn out by economic and social factors, such as high levels of poverty in some countries in the region and, others in, and in others rapid economic growth, creating a strong demand for foreign labor. People smuggling and trafficking is rife. Asia, of course, is not the European Union. The traditions, the cultures, the systems of governance are much more heterogeneous. Human rights are understood and prioritised very, very differently. And the right to asylum has not found an integral place in the legislation of the majority of countries. Only 13 countries in this broader Asian region have acceded to the international refugee instruments. Some are not even signatories to core international human rights treaties. National refugee structures throughout the region are scarce, as are migration policies that take account of the specific circumstances of refugees. Asylum applicants without the requisite entry or stay authorization mostly fall into the category of illegal migrant. There is a widespread fear in the region that establishing formal asylum procedures could create a pull factor, would prove too expensive, and would more than likely end up provoking problems with neighboring countries. An exacerbating factor in the region is a tradition of bilateralism and non-interference in the domestic affairs of neighboring countries. So with the pervasive lack of government ownership of and engagement with asylum issues in the region and limited resources in many countries to change this, the majority of countries still prefer to rely primarily on UNHCR to determine refugee status, to assist refugees and to find solutions. Of the 15 biggest refugee status determination processes which UNHCR as an organisation operates globally, five are in the Asian region. And I think that's indicative of the extent to which there is a transfer of responsibility from states to an international organisation. Now, if asylum structures in the region are lacking, asylum seekers are not. Uh, as we heard earlier, an estimated 63,000 people made the boat journey in 2014, mainly from Myanmar and Bangladesh to Thailand, Malaysia and beyond. 25,000 used this route in the first quarter of 2015, with the level and the scale of accompanying ab abuse unprecedented. People have been starved, beaten, imprisoned, sexually violated, both onshore but increasingly also on the smugglers' boats. They're often held 
for ransom and non-payment can result in death. The many stranded boats and the discovery of mass graves in smugglers' camps in Thailand and Malaysia helped to galvanise global attention and a call for action. Now, in summary, taking into account the sobering global context, the disarray in protection's traditional home in Europe, and the particularities of the Asia-Pacific region, obvious and compelling answers to a question centred on where to protect are not readily on offer, I would suggest. The current state of international law does not overly assist with answers either in this regard. So looking just briefly at some international law considerations, while the right to leave one's country, or any country, including one's own, is long enshrined in international law, it has been called an asymmetrical right. There is no corresponding right to immigrate, with states retaining a largely unfettered, largely unfettered sovereign discretion to decide who enters their territory. This is unfortunately almost as much the case with refugees as with the more classical migrants. The 1951 Convention relating to the status of refugees stops short of placing an absolute requirement on states to admit any particular individual for the purpose of providing sanctuary and solutions on its territory. An objects and purposes approach to applying the 1951 Convention can and probably even must entail for many a responsibility to admit. But there are still quite a large number of states, and I would suggest Australia is one of them, who do not see it this way. They don't interpret the Convention in those terms. They argue that the non-refoulement, the non-return obligation, is their main constraint which can be fulfilled, the argument goes, by ensuring that a refugee is protected against refoulement somewhere, even if that somewhere takes no account of family links, whether it takes no account of whether there's a fair and effective asylum system in place, or indeed how minimalistic the accessible protection might actually be. The Convention recognises a link between asylum and burden sharing. Its preamble acknowledges that granting asylum may impose heavy burdens and that states must be able to call upon international cooperation to underpin solutions. What this means in practice, though, has defied very many efforts to clarify it. One potentially important but ultimately failed effort was the so-called Convention Plus initiative of UNHCR some years back now. The so-called C Plus initiative was supposed to lead to special agreements and to multilateral arrangements to improve responsibility sharing, but there was ultimately absolutely no appetite for states to engage on this basis with each other. They feared the so-called blank check that this might result if they agreed to these arrangements. The most that could be agreed out of this Convention Plus process was a general commitment to use resettlement strategically as needs demanded. 
What strategic use of resettlement actually means is also a very complicated and unclarified issue. Since that time, there have been periodic further calls for states in the words of UNHCR's executive committee, and I'm quoting these words now, calls to states to equip themselves with appropriate planning, coordination, and financial tools that make international solidarity and the realization of durable solutions more predictable. But this is where it stops, at least internationally. The Europeans thought they'd found their own Eurocentric answer to responsibility in the form of the treaty-based Dublin framework. That has proved woefully inadequate over recent months. So if there is still broad agreement that there should be no, there is broad agreement at the moment, unfortunately, that there should be no unfettered right to choose your place of asylum. And recent events have shattered I think confidence in the one existing treaty-based arrangement, Dublin, to fairly organise where protection should be located and who should bear the responsibility. A lot of hope has been placed on the concept of regional protection over recent times, the argument being that, neighbours, that countries neighbouring each other will see the logic of sharing burdens and responsibilities through arrangements reflecting common interests and built on shared values. That's the sort of logic that underpins regional protection. So how feasible is this? How logical is this really in today's world? When it comes to Europe, one might have thought that the European Union and a regional approach would be synonymous. Yet even in Europe, this was not to be. And one lesson, I think, to draw from recent events there is how rapidly sovereignty will reassert itself in crisis situations, even in a part of the world where one can talk with some confidence in the, existing of a, in the existence of a region with many structural underpinnings in place. The notion of a region, shared structures, common jurisprudence to support it is also very developed in Latin America. Regional cooperation on asylum continues to enjoy broad support there, and the adoption in December 2014, not so long ago, in Brasilia, of a common regional roadmap on displacement and statelessness was a milestone in this regard. It includes 11 strategic programs, um, among them to establish borders of solidarity and safety, to foster solutions built around local integration, not only resettlement. Um, and the region is looking to host a transit mechanism to which recognized refugees from neighboring countries outside the region could come to have their resettlement possibilities examined. I think particularly interesting in the Latin American context, and I'm mentioning this because it is relevant, these trying to give context to, uh, or, or content to the notion of responsibility sharing is a real challenge and it's interesting to see what's being done elsewhere. Interesting in Latin America is the proposal for a labor mobility program which would offer refugees the option of putting themselves into existing migration arrangements, permitting their free movement, pairing labor needs in third countries with the professional profiles of refugees and not necessarily requiring them in the first instance to give up refugee status. 
Okay, realizing this program is a very ambitious goal, uh, but at a minimum, it, de it deserves real commendation as a genuine effort to attach actions to words, to give content, not just text, to how regional cooperation on asylum might actually work. Closer to home, one can say with great certainty, as we heard in the opening statement, that Australia's current vision for how and where to build regional protection structures is not the model to follow. Whatever has said about it being protection of lives driven, it is pretty clear that the overriding motive has been deterrence. If the boats are fewer, this has come about through substituting one set of problems for another. The holding and processing centres have become long-term and deeply troubled detention centres. They've witnessed repeated incidents of serious physical violence, including rape, and they house many whose mental health gets worse by the day. The resettlement alternatives are not viable for the majority, meaning that these unfortunate people are in practice Australia's long-term responsibility at exorbitant cost. Domestically, the policies are hugely divisive. They've had to be underpinned by a swathe of highly contestable laws, which are inconsistent with liberal legal traditions and international responsibilities. The danger is also there that the, these bad practices will infect the main relevant regional process, which is often referred to in this country as opening opportunities for regional protection, the Bali process on transnational crime and people smuggling. The Bali process has a very rudimentary, at best, embrace of asylum issues. Certainly recent documents coming out of Bali process meetings leave little reason for optimism that this is going to change. Senior officials of governments meeting in Canberra in August 2014 endorsed a strategy for furthering the Bali process objectives, including the creation of a regional cooperation framework. This was endorsed uh, as something to pursue. The strategy was reviewed and updated in May this year, in 2015 in part to ensure that the so-called priorities of the regional cooperation framework would be advanced. The priorities as they were originally set out, which was actually by UNHCR, who after all was the main proponent of the regional cooperation framework, the priorities were to put in place um, burden-sharing arrangements for solutions, to create national or to promote national asylum structures progressively and to see them established progressively and to have in place also decent and sustainable arrangements for return of the non-refugee or migrant part of the caseload. While these sorts of objectives were in one sense tacked on to a process centrally focused on transnational crime and people smuggling, they were to have had a life of their own, so as to embed core humanitarian and protection goals into the broader cooperation around law enforcement. That was their original intention. But if you look at the Bali process strategy for 2014 and beyond that was discussed and endorsed in May of this year, 
one is very hard-pressed to find words like asylum or refugee in the 13 pages which comprise the update. It's all about law enforcement cooperation, border management, information and intelligence sharing on people smuggling, travel fraud and border security, visa cooperation to prevent illegal movements, secure exchange of biometric data, and the disruption of criminal networks. That is essentially the frame of these 13 pages. A regional mapping exercise linked to initiatives on behalf of refugees and groups with special needs, including stateless people, is foreshadowed. Yet mapping will also cover initiatives relating to people smuggling, and who knows where the priorities between these two objectives are going to fall in practice. I think it is safe to conclude, at this point at least, that although regional cooperation is still being talked about through the Bali process, regional deterrence rather than regional asylum system building has reasserted itself as the prime objective of enhanced cooperation between states. Now, cooperation doesn't have to stop at the Bali process. There was a special meeting on irregular uh, irregular migration in the Indian Ocean, which con was convened on the 29th of May 2015 by Thailand to discuss Burmese and Bangladeshi asylum seekers. Spurred on by international outrage over the plight of boat people in the region, the participating governments at that meeting adopted the so-called Bangkok Declaration, which does see action on a number of fronts and has actually led rather unusually to agencies including UNHCR, IOM and UNODC, the drug uh, control organization, uh, capitalizing on the momentum of this meeting in May and actually now trying to work together to build protection in a traditionally allergic region. This in itself, this cooperation between agencies is a very hopeful sign. Now, the sort of actions that are being looked at, and I'm going to mention them uh, very generally, but I think they're also important going back to this point about giving content to the notion of responsibility sharing and trying to pinpoint where protection should be offered. It's interesting to look at these actions. They fall un under a number of sub subheadings. The first one is making the sea journey safer. So there's... There's a lot of effort at the moment around strengthening search and rescue arrangements and finding guaranteed disembarkation. So people are not just left on boats, but they will be disembarked against guaranteed pre-organised arrangements. The second set of actions uh, involves improving treatment on arrival through strengthened and supported reception facilities set up in specific countries and uh, strengthened and supported internationally. And at the same time, reinforcing national structures and deploying multifunctional teams, uh, as well as reinforcing local communities to care for people with specific needs. So there's an effort to rationalize reception arrangements and to put in place effective reception arrangements in certain countries. And then the third set of activities is putting processes in place to do status determination and needs assessment, relying in the first instance on UNHCR and what has been called mobile 
protection teams. And these would be able to move from country to country pending the establishment of domestic asylum frameworks by the affected countries. Fourthly, focus on ensuring agreed solutions strategies which would combine not just resettlement, and there's been an unfortunate heavy focus on resettlement in the region, but combining resettlement with regularised local stay with work permits in a number of countries, as well as uh, family reunification arrangements being improved. And for the longer term, they're looking at models for transitioning from refugee, station, refugee status to migrant status, including through bilateral and multilateral arrangements. Then there are other areas. There's a strengthening action to address root causes, which incidentally has to look very carefully at the Rohingya situation and statelessness in the region, but that's a key cause for people moving. And then enhancing support for voluntary return programs for the non-protection cases. And that, here the focus is very much on the IOM, International Organization for Migration Assisted Voluntary Return and Reintegration programs. So what does all this mean, or what might it mean for the question where to protect? If places of disembarkation can be agreed, if acceptable reception arrangements can be in place, if status can be adjudicated through mobile protection teams, so there's always a possibility for adjudicating status, if stay arrangements can be settled and migration pathways can be set up, this would in practice answer that question. The Achilles heel, though, as it always is, is getting states to sign on to all of this. One thing is to look at it and explore it, and another thing is to commit to it. In this regard, what regularly comes up in this region is whether a new comprehensive plan of action for the region, modelled on the comprehensive plan of action, the CPA, for the Indo-Chinese refugees, could serve this purpose to bring together all of these different disparate actions into a comprehensive plan of action. Now, I'm often asked, because I had a lot to do with the CPA in my early UNHCR days, whether it is feasible to talk about a CPA for the region. And I want to move to conclude uh, my presentation around some comments on this. The actual CPA had a particular time and place, which is unlikely to reoccur. This said, there are elements of that arrangement which would merit careful reappraisal today and possibly rejigging for bringing up again for use. The CPA rested on protection principles which all participants formally committed themselves to respect, even if they were not parties to the relevant instruments on which, from which these protection principles were drawn. It harnessed together temporary safe havens where screening could be done and a variety of solutions geared to the various needs of an increasingly mixed group of beneficiaries. Importantly, it proceeded on the basis of a negotiated definition of the problem, a negotiated definition of the problem, allowing any country having a slightly differing viewpoint for historical or security reasons to implement additional but not alternative responses. The United States, for example, for one, ran in parallel with the CPA 
um, towards its end a program of orderly departure for those who might not necessarily meet the standard refugee definition but were nevertheless persons in relation to whom that country was prepared to accept further responsibilities. The CPA worked because it was a global plan which formally implicated countries of first asylum, the country of origin and the international community on a burden sharing basis. Perhaps its, main, perhaps its main contribution, or a major contribution, was to help redress the pull factor of unlimited resettlement opportunities, which had hitherto underpinned the international response to the Indo-Chinese outflow. Wholesale resettlement, and it's important to bear this in mind because resettlement regularly comes up in Australia as the solution um, and the answering of a country's responsibilities. Wholesale resettlement had become a complicating factor, serving to dramatically increase the migration component of the boat departures and contributing to the growth of graft and corruption in the status process, which became quite serious towards the end, and indeed also encouraged quite a large expansion of the people smuggling business. And I think it's a very important set of issues to take into account when one is thinking about the role of resettlement. In conclusion, and this is seriously in conclusion, <laughs> I have a, an observation and a somewhat lateral postscript. My observation is that the old order when it comes to refugee protection is very possibly at a crossroads. There has, of course, been a lot of lip service paid to new directions for protection over recent years, but little to show for it. Subject to the yet unknown ramifications of Paris and beyond, the current displacement situation, even as desperate as it is, may nevertheless offer a rare opportunity to build upon the foundations of the 1951 Refugee Convention through a process to finally clarify the meaning of international solidarity and the general content of responsibility and burden sharing. Necessity has been driving countries in Europe to re-embrace the issues more creatively, going beyond funding arrangements. Countries in Southeast Asia have also been pushed into thinking through some, propo some proposals for how and where to enhance cooperation on asylum. In the Middle East, there are tangible signs of a willingness to work multilaterally, not only as traditionally bilaterally, on refugee and migration issues. Better regional arrangements have been high, at least optically, on the agenda in Australia and as elsewhere. When such a conjunction of circumstances has presented itself in the past, it has proved the opportunity for a global step forward, in part through initiatives like the CPA, which drove cooperation into interesting new directions. The absence of agreement around what burden and responsibility sharing should actually lead to has been a serious loophole in the protection architecture, and the opportunity to remedy this, now at least in my view, has a fighting chance. The postscript. As I watch the scenes in Europe, I'm reminded of a group encounter between former Libyan dictator, Muammar Gaddafi, and a captive group of delegation heads, of which I was one. We had all been hijacked without warning from a meeting in the capital in Tripoli. We were bussed to a palatial chandelier-lit tent, 
in an unannounced location, and we were left for a number of hours to wait. When Gaddafi finally materialized, he expounded for several hours without notes, sometimes quietly and deliberately, sometimes wildly and incoherently, on his central theme. And that theme was, should he ever be deposed, Europe and the Western world would reap what it had sown in its former colonies in the form of a veritable deluge of irregular migration. And that was his message over a couple of hours. Now this links in a way to a proposition that intrigued me in the publication I mentioned at the outset. One of the authors, Professor Jus, Jus calls for, and here I'm quoting from him, a refiguring of international refugee law as a compensation scheme as much as a human rights protection scheme. So as to avoid poor people having to face the consequences of someone else's military adventure. He suggests, again a quote, if we can give monetary compensation for tortious acts, there is no reason why we cannot give refugee status in the same way. Maybe herein is the germ of a formula which could ultimately contribute an answer to the question, protection somewhere but where. Thank you.